In verse 11, King Benjamin picks up where he left off. Again, I say unto you, as I've said before, so let me reiterate, that as ye have come to the knowledge of the glory of God, where if ye have known of his goodness and have tasted of his love, I love that the concentric circles are shrinking here. It's one thing, it's kind of more general to more specific. It's one thing to recognize God's glory. It's more personal to know of his goodness. And it's as intimate as it gets to taste of his love. Can you picture Lehi pulling down a fruit from the tree of life? Tasting of the love of God. Sweet above all that is sweet. Most delicious above any other fruit. If you've known of his glory and his goodness and tasted of his love, then you've received a remission of your sins, which causeth such exceeding great joy in your souls. He's just reviewing with them what they said back in verse 2. Even so I would that ye should remember and always retain in remembrance. Here's this sense of retaining what they've obtained now. How to hold on to this experience. Remember and always retain in remembrance. That sounds redundant to me, but I don't think it is. It's one thing, remembering almost seems, I don't know, passive. It just kind of happens. Oh, I just remembered that. As opposed to retaining in your remembrance, always. That, that seems to be much more active. This intentional, almost worshipful act of remembering. I love that word. President Kimball said it's one of the most important words in the English language, right? But what does it really mean? I thought about this once and I thought, wait, re is the prefix to do something again. And so to remember something is like, yeah, something's coming back to me. But then I thought, why member? Remember? I'm membering again? I don't know if I membered the first time. I, what does that mean to member again? And then I thought, well, is member a verb? Are there any other prefixes that go with member? And sadly, the one that came to mind, actually, gratefully, the one that came to mind was dismember. To dismember something means to kind of chop it up into pieces. We talk about dismembering bodies in like torture chambers and things. Horrible thought. But it made the thought of remembering much more clear for me. Remember how Paul talks about each body part is a member of the body of Christ? So when we're dismembered, it's things that are supposed to be together being cut off and separated. And so to remember is to bring all of those parts back together. It sounds a little Frankensteinish. I'm sewing it all back together. This dismembered is now remembered. But think about spiritual experience. Think about all of the ones that you've had throughout your life. And can you remember them? Can you bring them back into contact? Reinfuse them with life. Can you always retain in remembrance, hold them together? Because if you do that, they'll never be dismembered. You'll never forget. Remember the greatness of God. He keeps coming back to that, the height of that pedestal, and your own nothingness by comparison. His goodness and long suffering towards you, unworthy creatures. As a result, humble yourselves, even in the depths of humility. It didn't have to be the depths of sin. It can be the depths of humility out of recognition of the heights of God's goodness. Calling on the name of the Lord daily, that's how often we need to remember, and standing steadfastly. Every word here seems to be this digging your heels in, holding fast, right? Steadfastly in the faith of that which is to come, which was spoken by the mouth of an angel. Verse 12, if you do that, if you do your always, then God will do his always. Doesn't that sound like the sacrament prayers? In fact, this whole chapter and the next seem to revolve around the sacrament prayers. A covenant being made to take upon us his name. We'll see that in a moment. To always remember him and always retain in remembrance him. To keep his commandments, we've seen that run throughout. Second ledger, but important nonetheless, that we might always have his spirit. We do our always, and he will do his always. In verse 12, the always is that we will always rejoice. We'll always be filled with the love of God. We'll always retain a remission of our sins. 
And not only will we retain it, not only will we hold on to it, we will grow in the knowledge of the glory of him. I think Gregory of Nyssa just perked up. It's not that we're just holding on. What keeps us from sliding down the rope? We keep climbing up it. What keeps us from coming down the escalator? The fact that we keep following Jesus to the top. We retain what we've received. And we grow. By the way, I love marking my scriptures. They're all color-coded and circled and highlighted and underlined and crossed and words up and down the margin and in between the lines when I have enough space. Sometimes it goes all the way around the margin. There's a technical word for that. It's called marginalia, the stuff that fills the margin. And I love my marginalia. It's things that the Lord has whispered that I need to write down so that these plates are plates which I have made with mine own hands, as Nephi says. Chapter 4 of Mosiah, verse 12, has one of my favorite bits of marginalia. It's a single word, but it brings to my mind an entire lesson. It's a name. And the name I wrote next to verse 12 is Emily. Emily is my wife. We've been married for the last 21 years. And in most of those years, sometimes for birthday, sometimes for anniversary, sometimes for both, I will give her, among other things, a scripture, a verse, a verse that reminds me of her. And this is one of the verses that I gave her once because it describes her beautifully. For those that know my wife, they can never seem to wrap their heads around the fact that from age 15 to age 20, she was as far away from God as she could get. She wanted nothing to do with him or his church or even her family. And so as soon as high school graduation came, she was gone from all of it. Now, the story of her return is a beautiful one, perhaps best told another day. But what this verse reminds me of is the fact that my wife is an expert at retaining the conversion she experienced at age 20. Once she dusted off the Book of Mormon, she's never allowed it to collect dust ever since. She's one of my heroes. When it comes to retaining the love of God, rejoicing in that love, and growing in the knowledge of the glory of Him who created her, and more importantly, who recreated her. I've had some well-meaning, but perhaps overly judgmental students over the years. When they hear that my wife was inactive, and that I never was, sometimes will ask, so were you worried about marrying her? knowing that she'd been inactive for this time? And were you afraid that she'd fall back into it, that she'd slip, that she wouldn't be able to retain or maintain what she had finally obtained through reconversion? I understand where they're coming from, but they don't understand my wife. And so I always just tell them, look, I'm more worried about myself than I am about her. I'm probably more likely to struggle than she is. And more than anything, it's because she exemplifies verse 11, and therefore exemplifies verse 12. I'm so grateful for her presence in the margins of my scriptures and in the center of my life. As a result of all of these things, again, we're talking results and how to hold on to them. Verse 13, there are results of this. You will not have a mind to injure one another. Now, notice how he said that. He didn't say, and thou shalt not. That's the language of commandment. Instead, he says, ye will not. That's not the language of commandment. That's the language of result. Uh, it, this is more consequence than command. That if verse 11 and 12 describe you, then verse 13 will describe you as well. Cause and effect. You reap what you sow. If you've recognized your nothingness, but also rejoice in the glory of God, how will you view other people in their nothingness? Remember the story that was told in General Conference a few years ago about these two missionaries, and one thought he was so much better than the other, and he was kind of judging and being frustrated with his junior companion, until one fateful day, the Spirit just kind of gave him a two-by-four revelation, you know, the ones that smack you upside the head, and the Lord whispered to this elder, you know, compared to me, you two aren't very different at all. Ouch. If I recognize my nothingness, then I have no cause to judge or condemn or injure any of my fellow nothings. 
In fact, we're not even fellow nothings. We're fellow everythings. Because Christ condescended for them just like he did for me. And so if I feel this way, if I've come to this point, I will not have a mind to injure one another. Have you noticed how much easier it is to get along with people when you're filled with the love of God? It's not that you're flexing your muscles so that you can get along with them. You just do. It's a natural result. It reminds me of Jacob chapter 2. Remember that one when the Lord says, before you seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. It's about, all about the order here, right? Before you seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, you shall obtain riches if you seek them. And ye will seek them, not thou shalt, and ye will seek them for the intent to do good. He knows it now. No wonder he's willing to give you wealth if that's what you're seeking, because he can trust you with it finally. You've proven that he, you put him first, and having obtained your hope in Christ, what will the natural consequence of an increase of wealth be? An increase of generosity. You won't be able to help yourself. You will do these things. You will render to every man according to that which is his due. Verse 14, more consequences. And you will not suffer your children that they go hungry or naked. I have a feeling this is both spiritual and temporal. You won't let them go hungry for the bread of life. And you won't let them go naked, uncovered from the atonement of Jesus. Neither will you suffer that they transgress the laws of God. Remember that? That's what King Benjamin said about himself earlier. I didn't have to use the threat of dungeons or taxation, but I would not suffer you to commit iniquity. That's amazing how we pulled that off. But somehow we will too. We won't suffer our children to transgress the laws of God and fight and quarrel one with another and serve the devil. My mom quoted this verse every time that we would fight when we were kids. She wanted to make sure we knew who we were serving in the act. What will we do instead? Verse 15. Again, not a command, just a consequence naturally. We will teach them to walk in the ways of truth and soberness. We can't help but teach them that because that's what we'll be doing ourselves. We will teach them to love one another and to serve one another. Again, because we're doing the same. Now, if these are the natural consequences in the home, those consequences spill out and become natural consequences in the community. And so from verse 16, almost to the end of this chapter, he expands our view and lets us know there are other people who need you as well, just like you needed Jesus. So in 16... You will succor those that stand in need of succor. You will administer of your substance unto him that standeth in need. And now it gets more personal. Ye will not suffer that the beggar putteth up his petition to you in vain and turn him away. How does he know that? How does he know that we'll act that way? Because in verse 19, because we're all beggars. We know exactly how that beggar feels. Do we not all depend upon the same being, even God, for all the substance which we have? And then in verse 20, this whole time you have been calling on his name. You've been begging for a remission of your sins. Has he suffered that you have begged in vain? Nay, he's poured out his spirit upon you. So how can you keep from pouring out whatever you have to offer to those who need it? He's caused that your heart should be filled with joy. So how can we offer a lesser measure to those in need around us? He's caused that your mouths should be stopped so that you couldn't find utterance so exceedingly great was your joy. How can we not leave others speechless with the degree of our generosity, the sincerity of our desire to serve them? Can we also close their mouths when they attempt to thank us or to explain themselves, or to push us back in some kind of a sense of, I don't deserve what you're giving me. These people have been begging for forgiveness, as you and I have. When others are begging for similar things, temporally or spiritually, how could we possibly hold back when God has not? Well, some answers might come to mind to that question. That's why he prefaced it in verse 17 and 18 by calling that out. Back in 17, you might say, oh, it's his fault. He's brought upon himself his misery. 
So I'm going to hold back. I'll stay my hand. I won't give him my food. I won't impart my substance. His punishments are just. Well, again, just punishments? Isn't that exactly what we deserve for our sin? And yet it's Christ's long-suffering, his mercy, his patience that intercedes. And we don't get what we deserve. I've heard it said that justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. And grace is when we get what we don't deserve. Every one of our fellow beggars is more deserving of our mercy and even more deserving of our grace than they are of some misplaced sense of judgment or justice on our part. The way he says it in verse 18 is fascinating. O man, whosoever doeth this, the same hath great cause to repent. This goes back to the parable of the unmerciful servant, right? Who had so much forgiven of him when he begged of his master, have patience with me and I will pay you all, even though that was impossible when his debt was 10,000 talents. And yet when a far lesser debtor came to him and said the exact same phrase, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And it was in his power and within his lifetime easily to pay that back. The man had no forgiveness, no mercy for him. Talk about a great cause to repent. But then the end of verse 18, he hath no interest in the kingdom of God. Now, one way of thinking of that is, is he just not interested in the kingdom of God? Is he not interested in qualifying for it? Is he not interested in sharing its blessings with others? But maybe it's because we've been talking about unprofitable servants and thinking about debts and wages and so on throughout chapter 2 and 3. It made me think of that word differently. They don't have any interest in the kingdom of God. In economic terms, what is interest? In fact, we started today by mentioning the endowment. What is an endowment for a university, for example? It's a gift that keeps on giving. It's a gift that you're supposed to be living off the interest to the point that the actual gift itself never gets used up. It never disappears. It continues to produce interest to bless others. Do we have interest in the kingdom of God? King Benjamin's already assured us that if we will do anything, serve anything, give anything, God will immediately bless us and pay us. So we're still in debt. Is that the interest we're living off of? And can we recognize that there will always be interest to live off of? That Ledger 1 was such an endowment of grace that it will never diminish, will never use it up. And it will keep producing the blessings that immediately pay us for our obedience or our service. Can we trust in that? That the same God who created and preserves and saves me, creates and preserves and saves others, but perhaps the preservation of them will come out of the interest that he's giving me. We need to take care of each other. For God has so generously taken care of us. Verse 21, If God who has created you, Ledger 1, on whom you are dependent for your lives and for all that you have and are. Remember back in chapter 2? He talked about owing God all that we have and are. Same phrase. Here he's repeating it. We're dependent on him for all that we have so we can give it. All that we are to make more. And if he grants unto us whatever we ask that's right in faith, believing we'll receive, oh then how ye ought to impart of the substance that ye have one to another. In verse 22, he tries to make this easy on us. He talks about withholding your substance, which doth not belong to you, but to God. So he uses the possessive pronoun your, and then he takes it back. There's even a place in the Doctrine and Covenants where I believe it's Newell K. Whitney. The Lord is talking about the Whitney store. It's going to basically become the first bishop's storehouse. And he mentions your store. 
And then he corrects himself and says, I, I mean, the store. So he says to its owner, his store, and then he takes back the possessive pronoun. I mean, the store. If we approached everything as just the instead of as mine, it would be so much easier to give. That's why in the Doctrine and Covenants, whenever it talks about consecration, the idea is stewardship instead of ownership. I learned this as a roommate in college. When people would come over and see food that wasn't labeled and ask, oh, can I have some? I'd always say, oh, sure. It's Jason's or it's Matt's or it's Brad or Jeremy's. Somehow they seldom ask for any of the food that belonged to me. But boy, I learned it's so much easier to give away other people's stuff. Brandon's nice. He'll share. He might not even notice that it's gone. If we can make ours into the, and what we think of as ownership into stewardship, we can give away God's stuff pretty easily. And it's not just stuff that we're giving away. See, in verse 23, he talks to the rich. He says, that should be simple for you, particularly. 24, he talks to the poor, the ones that might have a harder time giving things. They're the ones at the end of verse 24 that say, I give not because I have not, but if I had, I would give. I hope that we can all say that. I hope that we can be more generous in our fast offerings, for example, especially at such times as this. That's the beauty of fast offerings. I used to think, fast offerings? That's genius when I was a kid. Like, wait, we're not spending the money on the food. So fast offerings don't actually cost us anything. Wow. And then I started thinking, oh, and if you're rich, you don't worry about saving the money on your meals. So you could eat and still give fast offerings. See, I only pictured fasting was to make fast offerings free. And so the wealthy that can buy themselves food and buy others food, ah, all the easier for them. They don't have to fast. Until I realized, wait a minute, fasting coupled with fast offerings is role reversal. I want to give to the poor because I finally know what it feels like to be the poor. I want to feed the hungry because for the last 24 hours I've been hungry myself. That's why Isaiah in chapter 58 talks about not hiding yourself from your own flesh. They're just like me. And I feel that now. And so I want to give. President Benson talked about the danger of pride from above and pride from below. And economically, that is so relevant. King Benjamin addresses both sides. And we need to eliminate pride in both directions. Verse 25, to either side, we're condemned if we covet what we don't have or condemned if we covet what we do. That's the irony of covetousness. We think of coveting meaning, I want what doesn't belong to me. Well, again, if we owe God for everything that we have and are, then does anything belong to us? We're all beggars. He's lent us breath. So whether I want someone else's thing or want my own thing, Again, there's no possessive pronouns except his, as in God's. The Lord made a point of that to Martin Harris back in section 19. When Martin, one of the few early saints with property to spare, the Lord says to him, Martin, quit coveting your own property. I laugh at that, going, wait, covet my? You, you only covet other people's stuff. And you can picture the Lord smiling and going, uh-huh. So quit coveting your property. It never belonged to you to begin with. Verse 26, he then brings it back to what his goal has been this whole second half of his discourse. I have spoken unto you these things for the sake of retaining a remission of your sins from day to day so you can walk guiltless before God. That's interesting. I don't pretend to understand all the connections, but there is some relationship between me giving to others and God giving to me. There's something about holding on to my forgiveness by being willing not to hold on to my goods. Almost like which one do you want to hold on to? God's grace or your goods? 
God's blessings or your belongings. Pick one and say goodbye to the other. And again, this applies to both the rich and the poor because he says at the end of verse 26 that we should be giving and administering both spiritually and temporally. Which are you able to offer? Then offer it. Look for ways to give whatever you can of both. You remember Peter and John at the steps of the temple with this layman looking for some physical alm or offering? And Peter says to him, silver and gold have I none. Which is odd because they were living the law of consecration at the time and these saints would sell their belongings and lay their wealth at the feet of the apostles. You think if anybody had any money, it'd be Peter and John. And yet silver and gold have I none. They've already given it all away and kept none for themselves. But what do they say in the next breath? But that which I have, give I thee. We can give spiritually and not just temporally. We can give time and attention. We can give testimony and love. We can give so many things that people need beyond the temporal though the temporal should be given as much as we can as well. Now, there's a caution in verse 27, an important caution. Because judging from the experience that these people have had, and again, all of those verbs in verse 20 of pouring out and filling up, there's a danger that, are these people going to go into debt so that they can provide for the poor? Are they going to make sure that no beggar is lacking in anything? since God has blessed them so abundantly. Verse 27 is so essential for the types of people that are now beginning to border on overzealousness, perhaps. Verse 27, see that all these things are done in wisdom and order. There's a whole talk by Elder Neely Maxwell by that title, Wisdom and Order, that has been a great blessing for me whenever I want to do more than I possibly can when I bite off more than I can chew in terms of wanting to meet everyone's spiritual and temporal needs. When I just can't. And nobody knew that quite like an apostle like Elder Maxwell. And so he says in verse 27, it is not requisite that a man should run faster than he has strength. You can almost picture every would-be perfectionist saying, but we can run, right? We can run. Yeah, yeah, you can. In fact, he says, be diligent, win the prize, but do it in order. Run, fine, but don't run faster than you have strength. That caution is so key for this kind of person who's at the point who wants to just give everything they possibly can. I've often joked that there's two kinds of people in the world. They each have a favorite scripture. One group, their favorite scripture is Matthew 5:48. Be therefore perfect. And they take it seriously. The other group, their favorite verse is Mosiah 4.27. Don't run faster than you have strength. Sometimes those two groups look like the Relief Society and the Elders Quorum. But I've often thought the best advice for each group would be swap scriptures. So that the perfectionists can be taught, don't run faster than you have strength. But we can run, right? Yeah, yeah, but don't kill yourself. And the lackadaisical can be told, be therefore perfect. As they kind of freak out and go, whoa, 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 is he serious? Is there like a JST there somewhere that softens it? You see, the truth in this lies somewhere in the middle where we're diligent and temperate in all things. We've balanced this. It's this group. Think about everything you know about them based on the experience they've just had in chapter 2, 3, and 4. And it's this group of full speed ahead saints that will need the reins pulled back a little. There's one other place in Scripture where this is repeated. Don't run faster than you have strength. And the context of that verse is similar. This is section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where Joseph has lost the 116 pages, and with it, the plates and the Urim and Thummim and the right to translate. Remember, he and Martin Harris felt that we have lost our souls over this. And yet, Joseph's given another chance. Here's the plates. Here's the Urim and Thummim. And here's a second chance. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm given a second chance, I want to make up for my lost first chance. If it was me, I'd be pulling all-nighters until the translation was done. I'm not letting this out of my sight ever until it's complete. And it's right there that the Lord says to Joseph in section 10, in context of translating, don't run faster than you have strength. Joseph, you're not making up for anything. Just pick up where you left off and move forward. I think there's even a beautiful lesson in that, that you're not going to retranslate the 116 pages. There's no making up for lost time. Just let it go. I have more than made up for it with this future translation. Just move forward. Give, but do it in wisdom. Run, but run at a sustainable pace. That's part of retaining things too. I have a son that had a chest deformity. The older they got, his ribs were growing faster than they should have, and it started to push the sternum outward. Some go inward, some go outward. His went outward. He called it his spike when he was little, and he hated it. Would never take his shirt off in public because he was self-conscious about it. And sadly, some people made sure that he felt that way. Well, there's major surgeries that can be done with it, brutal they're usually reserved for the ones whose chests go in because it starts to interfere with the internal organs. The doctors would have said to my son, well, yours is more cosmetic, so let's not go through the pain of a surgery. But what they did suggest was a brace that you ratchet in and literally crushes the rib cage so that the sternum is pushed back in. Sound pretty brutal. The first time my son put it on, he ratcheted that thing up so tight he could barely breathe because he wanted to look normal immediately. I warned him, son, I don't know if this is going to last. You're running faster than you have strength. There's no wisdom and order here. I didn't use those words, but I guess I could have. Sure enough, I think he made it about 15 minutes and then he just had to take it off. And he avoided that thing for almost a year. Until finally he decided that perhaps slow and steady was the only way. He was reforming his rib cage after all. He was bending bone. I'm amazed that he did it. But he did it. Day after day, night after night, a click here and a click there as it slowly reshaped him into what he wanted to be remaking us after the image of God will take an eternity too. So be diligent and temperate. Run and win the prize, but don't run faster than you have strength. You'll get there. The Lord will make sure of that. Verse 29 and 30, King Benjamin ends, or so we think, he concludes, I can't tell you all the things whereby you can commit sin. Some of you are creative, I'm sure, in terms of things that you could come up with that are wrong. I can't list them all. You know better. So what should we do instead? Verse 30, let me be general then, since I can't possibly be specific enough to cover every possibility. Watch yourselves. Specifically, watch your thoughts and your words and your deeds. And watch them in that order. The law of Moses only cared about watching their deeds and occasionally watching an important word or two. But thoughts, eh, do think what you think. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was all about raising the bar. The law says don't kill. I say don't even get angry. The law says don't commit adultery. I say don't even look with lust. The law says watch your deeds. I say watch your thoughts. And your deeds will never become something that you have to worry about. But don't just watch them for the negatives. The next breath, he says, and observe the commandments of God. The best way to eliminate the negative is to add the positive. That's how you get rid of darkness. You bring in light. 
So observe the commandments of God and continue in the faith of what you've heard concerning the coming of our Lord. If you do that, if you remember that, then you've retained the kind of experience that you had at the beginning of this chapter. Now, he's still not done. We might think he is. We thought he was done at the end of chapter 3. And then this magnificent chapter 4 came. It looks like he might be done at the end of 4. But here comes a short but incredible chapter in chapter 5. You see, in chapter 5, verse 1, King Benjamin sends among the people to see what they thought, to see if they believed the words which he had spoken unto them. I'm a teacher. That's a gutsy thing to do. To ask at the end of the lesson, did this mean anything to you? Has it changed you at all? Do you believe these things? Missionaries seem to have the courage to ask that at the end of discussions. I sometimes wonder if we do. I've actually been chastised before, spiritually speaking, because I didn't follow up on a blessing that I'd given. I just felt this twinge of, you had the faith to give the blessing. Have the faith to follow up on it. Help confirm their faith that that blessing came from God and that you're still interested in its fulfillment. Here King Benjamin is wanting to find out. And find out he did. Verse 2, they all cry with one voice. Again, this unified experience. Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us. And also we know of their surety and truth. Belief becoming knowledge because of the spirit of the Lord omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts. We're different. We had an experience because of chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now on the heels of chapter 4, we're different than we were before. A change of heart. We have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. No more disposition. It's not just that I'm going to try really hard to control myself. It's, I don't want to do those things anymore. Elder Bednar once talked about the, both the taint and the tyranny of sin. The Lord is there to help us overcome the taint and the tyranny. The taint is just the sin itself, the stain that it left. But the tyranny is its continued kind of mastery of our lives. When it's not just a, a blip on the radar, but that's the trend. It's not just something that we did, it's something we've become. That's the danger of sin. Satan wants sin to become our disposition. That's the natural man. That is an enemy to God. And yet if we put it off, starve it to death, Elder Maxwell once said, and become something, become a saint through the atonement of Christ, to have a new heart, a new disposition, where evil just doesn't interest me like it did before. Temptation isn't quite so tempting. And not just that we're eliminating the evil, end of verse 2, but that we're doing the good. In some ways, this is a simple approach to see the difference between telestial, terrestrial, and celestial. Telestial life is filled with sins of commission. We do evil. Terrestrial life is full of sins of omission. We don't do good. We haven't done bad. We're honorable people, section 76 says. But the valiant are the ones that have long since overcome the sins of commission that telestial people commit but also have weaned themselves off of the sins of omission that terrestrial people excuse themselves about. We don't just don't do evil, but we do good continually. And typically those two need to come together. And then in verse 3, strange statement, through the infinite goodness of God and the manifestations of his spirit, we have great views of that which is to come and were it expedient, we could prophesy of all things. I've wondered about the connection of that. How does a new disposition lead us to prophesy? How does forgiveness of sin, is that a prophecy of sorts? There's actually a fascinating passage in Moses chapter 6 where Enoch is commanded of the Lord to prophesy. Now, Enoch's scared to death that he doesn't have the words to use, right? I would be too if God said prophesy. It's like being a patriarch. Go be prophetic. And yet the Lord does say to Enoch, and say unto them, it's like, oh, you're going to help me? Awesome. 
I've got training wheels for this first prophecy. The Lord says, prophesy unto them, say unto them, here's your first word of prophecy, repent. Huh? How is repentance a prophecy? Well, with faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement, isn't it? Can't you predict the future if you repent? Can't you foresee and foretell forgiveness, change, redemption, a knowledge of the goodness of God, a new disposition? That's the kind of prophecy that every call to repentance really is. Verse 4, it is the faith which we have had on the things which our king has spoken that has brought us to this great knowledge, whereby we do rejoice with such exceedingly great joy. The beginning of 5 is so similar to the beginning of 4. And you see the order, faith leading to great knowledge and great joy instead of vice versa, just like we saw at the beginning of 4. If we're waiting on perfect knowledge and perfectly uninterrupted joy, to begin to offer some faith, I'll believe because my life is so good right now. Then it's still conditional. But unconditioned faith precedes this great knowledge and this great joy, as it should. Verse 5, and we're willing to enter into a covenant with our God, to do his will, to be obedient to his commandments and all things that he shall command us all the remainder of our days. That's quite a few alls there, right? There's our side of always from the sacrament prayer, the covenant that we make at the sacrament, renewing the covenant that we make at baptism. We want to commit to this. You want to talk about retaining things, then covenant. We're not just dating anymore. We're married. I'm not just investigating I'm a convert. I'm committed, covenanted. There's the sense of permanence that we're after. And verse 6, that's exactly what King Benjamin had been hoping for all along. This whole sermon, in all of its parts, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, was meant for this. You want to covenant. It's something I couldn't force upon you as a king nor would I want to. You had to choose it. But now you've chosen it. And then in verse 7, one of the most beautiful verses in this chapter, because of this covenant, you're now a child of Christ. Now that's a phrase we don't often use. We sing, I am a child of God, but I don't know of any song that sings, I am a child of Christ. Maybe somebody needs to write that one. Because that's what this whole sermon was leading up to. They started as children of God. They've ended as children of Christ. What's the difference? Let me take you back, oh, 19 years. My wife and I were expecting our firstborn. I think I was showing more than she was, but we were both so excited to have a baby. We didn't know what we were going to have, but then that ultrasound came that was going to let us know. Unbeknownst to me, my wife was really worried that I wanted to have a son. And when we found out we were having a daughter, which thrilled me to no end, and her, of course. She was a little nervous that I'd be sad by that. I grew up playing football, and she just pictured me picturing having a little son to throw the pigskin with. Well, now I have two sons, and we play catch all the time. But having a child, any child, was a thrill for me. Just to be sure, though, my wife introduced me to a new movie that had just come out that year called Remember the Titans. And if you've seen it, one of the coaches has a daughter. It's a football movie. One of the football coaches has a daughter who is as into football as the coach himself. And maybe she was just trying to reassure me that, hey, your daughters can love football too. By the way, my firstborn daughter couldn't care less about football. And I couldn't care less that she cares less. She's amazing. Exactly the child that I needed to become a father. But I do love that movie. In fact, there's a scene in there that has become almost scriptural to me because of verses like Mosiah 5, verse 7. If you remember the movie, there's this time where the team, it's this racial movie, and there's the African-American players and the white players, and they don't want to get along, and they're all, the team's all about to head off to summer camp. And the coach, Denzel Washington, gets up in the faces of two white players that don't want to do things his way, and he just stares at him and says, who's your daddy? Now, I love that moment. 
And as a new father, I loved reliving that moment with my baby. I'd just hold her and go, who's your daddy? It's an amazing question, especially when she got old enough to answer, you. Now, to me, it's a theological question, more than just a familial one. Go back to pre-mortality and ask yourself the question, who's your daddy? And there's an answer. We have a father in heaven. Now, wherever there's a father, there's also a mother. And so we have a mother in heaven as well. What are they the parents of? They're the parents of our spirit through some process of spiritual birth that I don't understand. But then we came to earth. And what was the first thing we got? Another set of parents. We burst onto the scene. And what does the doctor say as he's holding this newborn? Who's your daddy? And who's your mama? And you look around. And you see these two white-faced parents, and that's my dad, and that's my mom. What are they the parents of? Your physical body. Through what process? Physical birth, which I'm not going to explain to you. But so far, two for two, a birth brings with it a set of parents. You're part of that family. There's some family resemblance. It's taking on your parents' name. But eventually you'll get to a point where you get to choose a third set of parents. We don't have any doctrine that we chose our second set, nor did we choose our first. But the third set of parents we really do get to pick. Now, I've asked students over the years, who's this third set? The third time somebody asks, who's your daddy, the one you picked, who's your third daddy? And sometimes they'll scratch their heads or think and go, um, your father-in-law? And I always laugh and go, you don't choose your father-in-law. I love my father-in-law. He's one of my favorite people. But I didn't pick him. I didn't meet him and go, wow, you're awesome. Do you have any daughters I can marry? No, I met my wife. I chose her. And by default, I received a father, number three, in the bargain. Again, it was a win-win situation for me. So no, in-laws are not the parents you choose. So who is? Jesus is who's your daddy? Christ is your father. Now, not in the same way that Heavenly Father is your father. This is where it gets confusing. But through covenants, remember I said you get a new family every time you're born? Spiritual birth gave you heavenly parents. Physical birth gave you physical parents. Spiritual rebirth through covenant, that's what they're the parents of. If Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother are the parents of your spirit, earthly father, earthly mother, parents of your body. This set of parents is the parent of your covenant. And it happens at the moment of rebirth, as in baptism, conversion. This verse is full of that kind of familial language. Because of the covenant you've made, you are called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. You say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore, ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. You see this new disposition, this new changed heart? It's because you're part of a new family. But like I said, if there's a father, there's a mother there too. And if Jesus is your father in the covenant, who's your mother? Well, Paul gives us a hint to the Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Who's your mama? The church is. In fact, think about the proclamation to the world on the family. And what's a father's role? To provide, preside, and protect. And Jesus does all of those. He provides us with everything we need to return home. He presides over us. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He protects us from the consequences of the fall and of our own poor decisions. Meanwhile, what does the proclamation say is a mother's role? To nurture. And I know of no better word to describe what the church of Jesus Christ does for each of us. To nurture us. To help us grow in faith. To provide us with opportunities to serve. In fact, for those that say, oh, I love the gospel, but I can't stand the church. Careful about the wedge you are introducing into this couple. Now, I said that this third set of parents is one we choose. Well, if there's a choice, there must be an alternative. And sure enough, if we don't choose Jesus, 
then who's your daddy? Well, the only other person that would have us is Satan. Now, that sounds pretty stark. And so if I'm choosing, well, that's an easy choice. If the choice is between fathers, there's no way I'm choosing Satan. I'm choosing Jesus. Because if I chose Satan, ain't no way I'm singing, I'm so glad when daddy comes home. Okay. Uh, in fact, if I've chosen Christ, that becomes a beautiful second coming kind of song. right? So why would anybody choose Satan? Well, this is where the marriage comes in. Because if Jesus is married, so is Satan. Where there's a father, there's a mother. And if Christ married his church, then Satan married his church. Also known as the Great and Abominable Church. Also known as the world. The little nicknames that we give them is Jesus married Zion and Satan married Babylon. And Satan, knowing he, there's no way that we would choose him over the Lord, hides behind his wife. You see, this is an eternal custody battle. This is like an orphan with two sets of parents arguing over who gets custody of the child. But the child's the one that will choose. And so Lucifer get, hides behind his wife and says, pick her, pick the world. She's such a cooler mom than that other one. She'll let you do anything you want. You want Skittles for breakfast? Skittles for breakfast. Her? She has so many rules. Especially, oh yeah, spend a Sunday at, at that mom's house. Make y'all get dressed up and two hours at church. It used to be worse. I'll let you do anything you want. But is that nurturing? Is, is that presiding, providing, protecting? Hardly. But that is the choice that we make. Well, these saints chose wisely and picked Christ and his church as parents. Verse 8, Under this head ye are made free. And there's no other head. We already saw there's no other plan. There's no other salvation. There's no other conditions. Well, here there's no other head. At the end of the day, there really is no other daddy that can provide, preside, and protect you. No matter what he might say as he hides behind the world. There is no other head whereby ye can be made free. A different kind of freedom than what the other set of parents is offering. There is no other name given whereby salvation cometh. So take upon you the name of Christ if you've entered into this covenant. Remember way back in chapter 1 when he sits down, his sons, King Benjamin does, and says, I want to give this people a name. Nephites just doesn't quite cut it. They need to be Christians. I want to give them a name, but it has to be a name that they choose to take upon themselves, that they covenant to keep. There's something about new names that suggest a new family, a new identity. And with that name, you'll be found on the right hand of God, verse 9. Without it, verse 10, you'll be on the left. You'll have to be called by some other name. And we already talked about whose other name that might be. You see, in verse 11, we have to be careful so that the name doesn't get blotted out of our hearts. It's like writing your name on all of your possessions before you head off to school. But as they start to fade, the more you wash your gym clothes or whatever, you keep going over it with that magic marker. We don't want the name to be blotted out of our hearts. In verse 12, the word retain appears again. We've seen it three or four times already. We need to remember to retain the name written always in our hearts. That way, when we hear and know the voice by which we're called, we'll also know the name by which he'll call you. There's a passage in section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants that goes hand in hand with this. The word name comes up frequently. So in section 18, verse 23, Behold, Jesus Christ is the name which is given of the Father, and there is none other name given whereby man can be saved. Again, it's repeated in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's repeated in the Book of Mormon. It's repeated in the New Testament, in the Book of Acts, and in John. Verse 24, Wherefore all men must take upon them. He can't force it on us, but we can choose to take it. That's why in the sacrament prayer, we are willing to take upon us. Christ can't force it upon us, and we can't force him to give it. But both parties can be willing. That's what covenants are. 
all men must take upon them the name which is given of the Father. For in that name shall they be called at the last day. Wherefore, if they know not the name by which they are called, they can't have place in the kingdom of my Father. There's something about knowing that that's who we are. That's the name. I sometimes picture Judgment Day as some kind of a roll call. And the Lord pulling out some kind of a list of invitees and saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read off the list. And if your name comes up, you can come in. Again, as a teacher, I called roll at the beginning of semesters for a long time until I got to know the kids' names. And I remember one experience where I honestly thought, does this person not know their name? If they're here, why aren't they saying present? I was going down the list. Now, I'm a Spanish-speaking return missionary. And so when I see a word that ends in I-E-J-O, I think viejo, like viejo, old in Spanish. Well, I saw this name. I'd never seen it before, but I thought, oh, that's a beautiful Spanish name. And so I called it. And I said, Casiejo? And no answer. And so I said it again. Uh, is there a Casiejo here? I mean, the room seemed full. I thought, I, I'm looking, I, it's the beginning of the semester. I think we've got good attendance. Where is this student? Does she not know her own name? And so again, in my richest, best Spanish accent, I once again asked, is there a Casiejo here? And this sweet girl raised her hand in the back and timidly said, Do you mean Cassie Joe? <sighs> and I felt a little sheepish. You do know your name. I didn't. My bad. Do we know our name? When it's uttered, will we know who it's referring to? Because it's only the name of Jesus. God doesn't have to pull out a long scroll or a big phone book. He can pull out a post-it note and say, okay, I've got the list of people who can come in. And we look at him holding this post-it note going, oh boy, I knew that the bar was high, but hardly anybody made it. And he says, okay, when I read your name, if it really does belong to you, come in. And there pins and needles, wondering if he'll say us, he simply says, Jesus. And we look around and think, well, of course he's in. But what about the rest of us? You really had to be that good? Or maybe we're thinking, is this alphabetical? Um, the J's are after the H's. None of us made it. No, no Halverson's in there. Or do we realize, I think he's talking about me. That's it, sweet Cassie Joe going, I think you mean me, although that name doesn't quite sound like the one I am familiar with. I, I, th I think that's me. I'm a Christian. I've taken upon myself the name of Christ, and that's the only name that he'll call for entrance. Do we know that that's what he's calling us by? Have we become like him? Received his disposition? His heart? His image in our countenance? Is there a family resemblance? Is there a family name? Then come. And every chance you get, keep re-engraving in the fleshy tables of the heart. Keep re-inscribing that Jesus is you and that you are he. It only seems like a tall order if we're not doing verse 13. Another great aspect of retaining this kind of an experience. Verse, 20, uh, verse 13, For how knoweth a man the master whom he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? I know I'm married, but do I really know my wife if I don't think about her? If the intents of my heart aren't on her? I can know I've made covenants. I can know I'm a Christian, but do I really know him? Am I sealed to him? Am I part of the family? If I don't serve and think and intend to be like him, those are beautiful ways to maintain, to retain what the Lord initially helped us to obtain. One last verse in this chapter about Standing firm and not losing ground, holding on to what we have. Verse 15, 
Be steadfast and immovable. Always abounding in good works. Again, we keep bounding forward, abounding in good works, and we'll never slide back. So that Christ, the Lord God Omnipotent, may seal you His. We usually use the verb seal when it comes to temple sealings. And we already saw back in verse 7, we're joining the family of Christ. Well, he does believe in the eternal family. He wants to seal us his. By the way, his rival, the other potential daddy, he believes in the eternal family too, but in the negative way. There's a verse in Alma 34 where we're cautioned that the devil also wants to seal us his. I'd much prefer to be part of this eternal family so that we can be brought to heaven to have everlasting salvation and eternal life. How? Through our white-knuckled grip on obedience and the laws of God? No. Through a recognition of God's wisdom and power and justice and mercy of him who created all things in heaven and on earth. God above all. That's how we make it. And there's no other way to make it. Now, King Benjamin is done. Almost. He's done with his sermon. He's not done caring for and loving and worrying about his people. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, he takes their names so he can remember those that he needs to help remember. I laugh sometimes when I pass around roles in institute now especially in large night classes where there's too many people for me to know everyone. And I'm amazed at how many just do not want to write their name down. I don't know if it's privacy issues or what, but, or I don't want to commit to anything. But please don't make me sign the role. I don't want you to have my name. And yet all King Benjamin wants to do, all I want to do, is to be able to remember them. I text every single one of my students after they've come just to let them know I'm here for them and want to be a blessing to them. That's all that these names are for. Why do we have our name on the record of the church? What's the tragedy of when somebody wants to take their name off the records of the church? All we want to do is remember you so we can help you remember him. That's what Moroni says at the end of the book, right? Moroni chapter 6, verse 4. There's this beautiful list of verbs in chapter 6 of Moroni verse 4. After they've been received unto baptism and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost, that describes pretty well what's been happening among King Benjamin's people as far as covenant and cleansing. What happens? Here's the four verbs. They were numbered among the people of the church. Their names were taken. Why? Just so we can make a good ward directory? No. That they might be remembered, third verb, and nourished, fourth verb by the good word of God. Why? To keep them in the right way. Just to help you stay. This whole lesson today, chapter 4, 5, and 6, has been about retaining. It's helped to help keep you in the right way. Because there's no other way. To keep you continually watchful unto prayer. Because it's so easy to fall back asleep. Relying alone upon the merits of Christ because it's so easy to start relying upon ourselves, but to rely on Christ, who was the author and the finisher of their faith. He's the author. He wrote it. He's the finisher. He will end it. Intro to conclusion. Preface to appendix. Christ is there, pen in hand, ready to write his name upon us. So can we have your name? So we can remember it? and help you remember whose name you really have? That's the message of Mosiah chapter 6. He passes the political baton to his son Mosiah in verse 3. But spiritually speaking, end of verse 3, he appoints priests to teach the people that thereby they might hear and know the commandments of God. Why? To stir them up in remembrance of the oath which they had made. He wants to help them retain as well. Stir them up. It's amazing how kind of crusty things can get. Have you ever let oatmeal sit? Have you ever let soup just sit for a while? Till the top becomes almost this impenetrable layer? 
Looks like it's gotten cold and hard and inedible. But it's amazing the resurrection that can happen to certain foods just with a little stirring. Rip through that tough exterior and there's still steam waiting to rise. I'm grateful for those throughout my life who have stirred me up to remembrance. It's one of my favorite things about teaching. To just help people see what they used to see, to feel what they once felt, to be reminded that there is a new heart in there. Hold on to it. I'm so grateful for these chapters. I'm grateful for their influence in my life. I'm grateful for King Benjamin. And I'm grateful for the message that he continues to teach me through his words. May your heart belong to him who created you. May you choose and covenant to be and to remain in the family of Christ, grateful for both your father and your mother. I pray that we will believe these things. And as Benjamin said, if we believe them, see that we do them. May we believe and do in such a way that we can truly be obtainers, retainers, maintainers of the name of Jesus Christ. And may we share that name with all the world. Thank you for being a part of this scripture study. May the Book of Mormon continue to bless your life. And I'll see you again next week to study more of it. Take care.